This is TREPWIRE Week in Review for week ending May 29th. I'm Martha Kocher with TREP, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director and Joe McBride, Head of CRE Finance. This week, with the summer in front of us, the road to reopening has begun in earnest. Retailers, hotels and theme parks are announcing they're open for business and slowly jobless claims are ticking downward each week. This week, 2.1 million initial jobless claims, pushing the 10-week total to 40 million. Some of the casualties we've seen have clearly been in lodging and retail with another round of pandemic bankruptcies. Even with all this, it seems Wall Street is optimistic. Is the worst of this behind us? Thanks, Martha. Um, The best news I saw was the opening of of Disney, which I, I loved. In one of our earlier podcasts, I was calling for it to happen by Mother's Day or Memorial Day. So I was off by uh, about a month and a half. But I'm really uh, happy to see that. I think it's a a return to normalcy. And it reminded me of something. I was watching this on TV the other day. I've been watching a lot of legacy sports. And they were showing an old Super Bowl. And at the end of it, they had Phil Simms on the field. He was the MVP. And they used to do this where somebody would jump on the field and they'd ask the MVP, what are you doing now, Phil? And he'd say, I'm going to Disney World. It was their ad. They'd run that ad for about six weeks after the Super Bowl. I don't know if they still do that anymore. Um, By the way, the Giants won that game. Um, (laughs) The videotape I want to see now is I want to see the videotape from Orlando with Buzz Lightyear saying, I'm going to see the Giants play the Eagles. Right. That's my next benchmark now that, that Orlando's opening. I want to see NFL football camps open and I want to see uh, real sports take place in the fall. We always can find a way to bring it back to sports. Absolutely. Uh, well, I think that the NBA is potentially planning on using the wide world of sports down in Disney to house and, and do their whole kind of limited season that's going to come back. And the NHL has announced plans for how they're going to do the playoffs and the Stanley cup. But uh, we don't know when they don't, they haven't said when yet. Um, but I, I feel like, you know, the market came out of Memorial day weekend with a renewed sense of optimism. And, you know, especially here in the Northeast, I think people finally got out of their house. They finally, you know, tried to go to the beach or tried to go to their, you know, family's house or, or whatever it may be. And I, I'll say, you know, I was at uh, Lowe's on Sunday because during this quarantine, I've become quite a handyman about the house. Uh, and I needed to, you know, get a part for, to fix something. Fix the and Nerf the, hoop maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the parking lot on Memorial Day Monday was 100% full. I had to drive around for five minutes to find a spot and I went inside and everyone had their masks on and a lot of people had gloves on. Everyone was very friendly and, you know, calm and easy. And it just gave me this feeling of, you know, the, the consumer is still there and, um, you know, I, I'm granted I'm in Westchester County where a lot of people are still working and everything else, but it just gave me this sense of, you know, economic positivity, I guess you might say. And obviously Lowe's and Home Depot and those guys have have remained above the fray and, and remained doing well because they were allowed to remain open during this whole quarantine. But um, 
I feel like th that could be a very small microcosm of what the whole market is feeling, which is we're starting to see signs of hope. We're starting to see reopenings and, um, you know, there's only so long you can keep people inside, especially when the weather starts getting nicer. I was actually at a shopping mall this weekend, maybe the first time in 10 years. I was at the Haywood Mall. Is that in, in CMBX? It's, I have to go back and look. I'm not really <laughs> sure. It did lose a Sears a couple of years ago. Uh, it still has a JCPenney, a Belk, and a Macy's, but it was hopping. Place was full. Uh, people across the spectrum, age-wise, um, I didn't get the sense that people were going into department stores. Uh, masks were in short supply. I would say maybe one in 15 people, one in 20 were wearing masks. Uh, the guys that seemed to be doing well were the people that cater to um, millennials, I would say. Foot Locker, um, guys that sell like uh, hats, t-shirts, stuff like that, you know, were seem to be doing very well. Anything that caters to people 40 and up, uh, seemed to be struggling. So, um, but it was busy. And, and I would say on the way there, I, I saw, or I believed that we are now living through the golden age of people that put up party tents, that every bar and restaurant on the way to the mall had a huge tent that was full of people sitting outside, uh, microbreweries, Applebee's, casual dining, everybody had a tent. And those right. guys must be killing it right now. Well, if you think about it, the the places outside of the major cities have the ability to do that. You know, if, if Manhattan, if Cuomo or de Blasio says, hey, you can have outdoor dining now, like, but where? I've got five square feet of, of sidewalk in front of my store. It's not going to be, it's not going to be as reasonable to be able to pull that off. Close down every other avenue. Right. Yeah, they we're talking about doing something that, right? Right. Just like uh, put tables outside. You don't have any vehic vehicular traffic right now. So, uh, yeah, so I will say data? that. Yeah, I will. Just one more thing, just anecdotally again. I mean, every week it feels like um, there are more and more cars on the road, you know, and I've been driving around and going to different places. And three or four weeks ago, there was nobody on the road. And the yesterday or maybe it was two night two days ago i took a ride after work and it felt like a regular work day maybe not exactly all the way there but it felt like there were a lot of people out at five o'clock you know coming from work or going somewhere so you know glimmers of hope here in lockdown new york state uh, one more detour before we get to some data hertz filed for bankruptcy last week so the tip of the week for our uh, listeners is you can go to the Hertz website. They're selling cars, hundreds of thousands, uh, firm prices on what they're offering out there with the number of miles. Uh, they're listed by your geographic area. Uh, I floated the idea to my wife about buying the $60,000 Corvette to complete my midlife crisis. <laughs> and she, uh, responded with how about a Ford fusion with about 30,000 miles on it. So, <laughs> Um, we're still in negotiations about that, but uh, right now I, I don't feel like I have hand. We're trying to we're trying to flatten the curve on your midlife crisis here and yes. have it last a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So let's talk about the data. We'll go through some uh, CMBS data that we're seeing. Um, this is uh, from late May, so the month is is pretty much closed. We'll be putting out our our regular. Um, 
delinquency number on Monday for people to look at. Um, we're talking about private label CMBS. So this is uh, no agency loans, no CRE, CLOs, stuff like that. It should give people a sense of, of what we're seeing. Uh, on the delinquency front, um, hotels and retail properties continue to get killed. Um, as of May 2020, 19.3% uh, of all uh, hotel loans are 30 days delinquent or more. Uh, that's up from 1.4% at the end of 2019. Um, loans that are not yet delinquent in the lodging category, uh, but missed their May payment, 15.6%. So we're talking about 35% of the hotel market is either 30 days late or missed their May payment. Uh, those same numbers for retail, 10.3%, uh, 30 days delinquent as of May. That's up from 4% in uh, December 2019. 13% of retail borrowers missed their May payment. So 24% of borrowers are either 30 days delinquent or missed that May payment. Um, there are some positives out of this. Um, industrial only saw a modest uptick and is still below 3% uh, as of May or I should say under 2% as of May for delinquency. Um, offices, 2.4%, 30 days delinquent, another 3% missed the May payment. So only about 5% of offices um, seems to be struggling uh, keeping that payment current. Multifamily, uh, about 4% delinquent in the private sector. And a lot of that is in student housing. So that's um, kind of where we stand. The overall delinquency rate, um, if you include um, if you don't include defeased loans in the denominator is about seven and a half percent, which is up from about 2.3% uh, in December. Uh, loans in special servicing, you know, lodging and retail, I won't get into the specifics, but uh, they lead the pack. If you look at lodging loans that are either on watch list or with a special servicer, 53% as of May, that was up from about 16 or 17% in December. Uh, retail 36%, either special servicing or on the watch list. So those two segments continue to uh, really, really uh, have challenges. A um, few more bullet points. 20% of all CMBS loans are now on watch list. That's about $100 billion worth of uh, inventory that's sitting on watch list right now. Of the new loans that were added to watch list last month, 54% were added to watch list because of COVID related reasons. And of that, were at, of the loans that were added to the watch list for COVID, 38% were from hotels, 37% from retail. So there's a trend here that, um, you know, is undeniable that hotel owners are getting crushed and retail borrowers, you know, who had been getting crushed um, before the crisis began are now getting squeezed even harder. And we're starting to see, I saw in the wire, the trip wire this week, um, we're starting to see the process, right, of uh, loans and borrowers going through this forbearance request concept. We've seen some things like um, what we would call non-transfer special servicing, which is basically the special servicer is handling the loan, but it's not considered a transfer to the special servicer. So the borrower doesn't have to pay special servicing fees. Uh, we also saw a couple of loans get rejected 
for forbearance requests. So that's interesting. I think it's all anecdotal so far, just a couple of loans that we've, um, you know, been able to search through the commentary and see that. Uh, but, you know, I, I wonder how, you know, what the protocol will be by these special servicers to say, yes, you earn a forbearance, but you do not. Like, where is that line? Uh, maybe they're looking at, you know, how much cash flow they've generated over the last year or uh, how much in reserve they have or, or um, you know, I guess we'll see. Uh, there was a great Crefsy call. That's the trade organization for the industry last week um, that had hundreds of people on it and had a couple of servicers um, talk about the matter. It was closed to the press, so it, it didn't get a, much, a lot of um, publicity. And I'll honor that. We shouldn't really talk about what they said specifically. Um, but I will give a couple of, you know, other tips of the day for borrowers that happen to be listening. Um, number one is um, you don't have to go to special servicing to get this forbearance. You can get this just through the watch list. It'll save you uh, a decent amount of coin. So, you know, the way to go is, is to request the forbearance, have all your paperwork ready. Um, and that's available on the Crefsy website, what you need available to request this. And don't necessarily ask for a transfer as part of this process. You could save yourself some money. Um, by way of anecdotal data, what we're seeing is the most common forbearance we're seeing is a 90-day timeout from P&I payments. Uh, there's also often some um, reserve relief, either the ability to tap reserves to make interest payments or to stop funding reserves uh, to give the borrower more relief. And there's normally a 12-month payback period for any uh, deferred payments of either one. So that's the most common thing we see. And I think that, um, and I'm really just speculating here because this wasn't really addressed, but the types of people that are getting rejected for forbearances are one of two types. One is they come in without the necessary paperwork to kind of demonstrate the need right? They haven't filled out all the things that they need to, to, to show where their revenue is and their occupancy and, and so forth. Or it's a Hail Mary pass, which is if everybody's getting relief, I should get relief. And every now and then you see offices coming in, which have 95% occupancy and good tenant bases. And yet the guy still asks for relief. And that's the kind of situation where I think you're going to get uh, some pushback from uh, the forbearance request. Looking, uh, looking at retail, given the, the number of bankruptcies we've seen in the month of May alone as a result of the pandemic, it spurred us to talk to someone who consults to the industry. Jan Niffen is a CEO of WWE and uh, basically consults people who are investors in retail or retailers. He had some interesting perspectives, Joe, when we spoke with him about what he thought was going to happen in the short term and the long term. Yeah. So yeah, we interviewed Jen uh, recently and it was one of those moments, which, which does happen to me fairly often in this industry uh, of talking to somebody who knows so much more than me that it's almost overwhelming. Um, but he was a great, great interview. He talked about, you know, the number of malls that exist now versus what existed only five or six years ago, kind of forward looking predictions for, um, the retail experience in general. I think I threw him a few curveballs on, you know, the psychological impacts of 
a touchless social distancing future. And if that even is what's going to happen in the long run, or if we will go back to somewhat more normal life, uh, God willing, we will. Um, you know, he was fairly positive. He had a fairly positive outlook on the consumer and on, on retail in general. I think, you know, this COVID thing, he, he actually used a similar line that we've been using for a while, which is COVID has just uh, accelerated trends that were already occurring, right? We talked about the, the shift to, to online um, purchasing and the shift away from, you know, soft good department stores and things like that. Um, I asked him about my, my favorite, you know, Dunkin' Donuts retail strip center where I did all my studying in college and how those types of properties will be doing and how they will change. Um, so it was a really great interview and um, hoping you guys uh, will check it out. Yeah, I think we'll release it uh, next week in its entirety. One of the things that I took away from it was a little disturbing, which is that the move toward digital shopping uh, rarely goes backward. And so as we've talked about, I think in the last week, we went to like 26% online shopping. He thinks that that might be a shift that continues permanently. So that's disturbing right. for brick and mortar. And, and we saw more, more bankruptcies this week that uh, corroborate that. I liked, he pointed out that since, you know, the beginning of online shopping, if you look at any particular good, you know, any particular thing that gets sold online, the market share of digital sales for that particular good, once it starts being sold online has never decreased. Right. So we started selling books online and the, the market share of digital sales has just increased since the dawn of time. Right. And clothes and, you know, sneakers and whatever the heck else you can think of, you know, nothing has ever really returned to brick and mortar. Uh, he also used a line and I, I have to mention it in the podcast, in our podcast, because uh, he before he does on CNBC, just so that we can get credit, you know, his part was he's been doing this for a million years and he's, he's seen it, you know, he's gone through all these phases and he just, he basically said the consumer will be there. Right. And then my retort was the question is where there is. Right. And I was happy that he kind of stepped back and, and thought about that one. And, you know, he might be using that one where there is, is there Amazon is there your local strip center is there the enclosed mall or not. Right. So, um, well, that's a, that's a great point because, um, you know, what we saw when you talk about Amazon, is it going to be at Amazon? We saw recently uh, really great surges in online sales from Walmart and Target, right? So I think for the first time in a while, I think Amazon is starting to think that they have real competition to keep uh, their market share high in the digital space. And, and I think that will be interesting. When you started talking about going backwards, Martha, I thought you were going down a different path. Uh, I'm a bricks and mortar guy, right? I'm not an online guy. I rarely shop online. Uh, the only thing I ever really got online was, you know, tickets to games. And so I've been shut down in that area for the last uh, three months. So I still go to stores and I get uh, endless criticism from my kids for going backwards in the one-way aisle. I am consistently going the wrong way on the one-way aisle uh, you know, down the frozen food section or the household items. I am, uh, 
I have terrible etiquette in the, uh, in the shopping, in the grocery store, uh, venues shame in terms of going in the right direction. Shame I've on yet you. to be, uh, shouted out of the store, like that person in Staten Island for not wearing a mask, but it's, uh, <laughs> that day's probably coming. I will probably go down the wrong aisle in the wrong direction one time too often. Yeah, they probably just see the look on your face and realize like this guy's out in space somewhere. He doesn't he's even lost. realize that he's going the wrong way. The it's thousand lost. yard grocery store stare. <laughs> as long as you're not wearing your mask under your nose, Manus. You know, uh, I gave up a long time ago, you know, worrying about things like socks with sandals or, you know. Uh, <laughs> People are getting a mental picture right now. You know, the, you know, the, the you know, the, Two day no shower type of thing, you know. I, I gave that up when I was about forty. <laughs> well, so let's talk a little bit more about retail for a moment. Uh, we talked last week about the haves and the have-nots. Um, you know, the haves are the guys that have um, food to sell, uh, hand sanitizer, toilet paper, anything like that, and and the other guys are, um, you know, apparel. You know, especially apparel that's not for uh, millennials, apparently, from my, my visit to the store, uh, to the mall this weekend. You know, more evidence of that this week. You know, this morning, Dollar Tree came out with great earnings. Dollar General came out with great earnings. Dollar Tree was up 11% uh, their stock this morning. Um, and, and, you know, they're just selling stuff that, that people need for, for day to day, right? And, and they did great. Um, by the same token, Abercrombie & Fish this morning, uh, announced that sales were down 34%. So I, I think that you will see um, that trend continuing, um, you know, along the same lines we saw the REIT CBL this week uh, throw in the towel on a couple more shopping malls. They had debt on several uh, assets, some backed by, uh, some with loans from legacy deals from 2006 and 2007 that were uh, lingering around a couple of others from uh, 2010, um, where they announced that they were going to table negotiations and look to hand the keys back to the, um, the lenders. Um, so that just is continuing a trend that we're going to continue to watch, um, going down the road. So good thing for non-recourse lending and CMBS, right? These guys, these, uh, owners can make a economic decision to turn over the keys to some of the malls that they own and not have to worry about, you know, bankrupting their whole company or defaulting, you know, throughout the, having a corporate level default. Right. And I believe CBL doesn't have a lot of, um, uh, you know, unsecured debt coming due in the near term. Right. So they have a little bit of breathing room, but um, you know, it's just part of a trend. We saw this, um, with other borrowers during the last financial crisis. We haven't seen it much yet uh, other than Washington Prime throwing back the keys on a couple malls last year. Um, but we do expect it to accelerate going forward. Should we talk about uh, this week's bankruptcies? Yes. If you can pronounce, if you can them. pronounce them. Yeah. Well, I'm going to leave the second one to Martha. We need somebody that's refined to uh, talk about the name of this company. The first one is, and, and we're not, Joe and I are not refined. <laughs> um, Tuesday morning, which is a discount um, arts and crafts seller, I believe, ironically filed for bankruptcy on Wednesday morning. 
Um, they operate 200 stores nationwide, which was shocking to me. It's always amazing to me how big the footprints are of companies that I've never been uh, in their stores or even seen one of their stores. Uh, they said that they were going to close 230 stores. 130 have already been announced. You can go on our website uh, if you'd like to and see which uh, CMBS loans are impacted um, or touch or intersect with CM or with uh, Tuesday morning stores that are closing. Uh, they're going to look for a buyer. Uh, but as we've seen in the past, not every one of these guys finds a buyer. And that is... Um, problematic. So we'll keep an eye on that one. The second one, Martha, was? Le Pain Quotidien. Wow. And that is exactly why I struggled with French in high school. Right? Well, that I could never pull that off. The funny thing is, is I've been told I speak French with a Spanish accent. So Interesting. Uh, I was told I tried to speak French with a Brooklyn accent. So <laughs> uh, it, didn't, it didn't really work. Um, that company operates uh, coffee shops and bakeries in major cities, uh, New York, Los Angeles, Miami, and Chicago. Uh, two thirds of their stores will be closing. They're going to try to find a buyer. Uh, they do make great coffee. I've been there uh, many times, a little pricey. They had a great, uh, you know, oatmeal and granola thing that you can get, but it was about nine bucks. But <laughs> Uh, you know, I felt lunch like, place. Uh, you know, I felt like uh, for once I was getting out of my adolescent uh, sweet spot for, you know, for food uh, choices when I had Not to that. be confused with au bon pain. Au bon pain. <laughs> um, but, you know, what they operate, and this was a problem before the recession, uh, you know, street level retail in Manhattan was already struggling with store closings and they had a lot of locations in New York and, uh you know, it's just a sign of the times that, you know, apparently they think that this is uh, a tough, a tough thing. And I'm speculating to see these things opening in the near term. Just think about, you know, the walk from Grand Central to the office, right? There's a Starbucks, an Au Bon Pain, another coffee shop, another deli, a little pizza shop, like times that by a million and there's zero foot traffic going out of Manhattan for three months. I mean, when we come out of this, I don't know how many of those are still going to be around. And, or the landlords are going to have to reset rents because they were already charging too high rents for these guys to survive. So I can't imagine what's going to happen when they've gotten zero revenue for three months. I can't imagine. I, I could never have imagined that it would be a coffee shop that thought we're not going to make it through here. Right. right. I thought coffee and alcohol are the two things that people... Like people would wear a barrel with suspenders instead of clothes before they gave up their coffee and uh, alcohol. Right. Right. And that's, uh, you know, a little bit shocking to me. I'm also worried about the rodents. Have you heard about this? Yes. Aggressive. They're, they're, they're running hungry. out of food because there's not enough, you know, people coming into the city and throwing their garbage on the ground for the, for the rodents to eat. So if we go back to the office, not only should we be wearing masks, but we may need to be wearing some protective armor. You need to feed bring the some, Bring some sort of, you know, rat mace or something <laughs> to go back to the city. <laughs> different yes. different risk of being in the city. Might have to cut that for PETA purposes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, uh, let's turn to office if, uh, if we're ready to do that. There seem to be two schools of thought on what's going to happen with office properties. Is office centricity a thing of the past or not really? 
Well, I do think that you have haves and have nots here also, right? What we saw this week was some huge projects announced by some of the FANG stock operators or owners, um, which show that their relentless pursuit of space in major metropolitan areas is not slowing down. So uh, Boston Properties and Microsoft are going to do 400,000 square feet in Reston, Virginia. Microsoft said that this was not going to come at the expense of the 150,000 square feet they already have in that uh, area. So that's 400,000 square feet there. Uh, Boston Properties, by the way, this morning announced that they had collected 97% of, of rents in May, um, which, is a, which is a great sign. But Microsoft, another huge project in Atlanta, right? I think they're going to add 1,500 workers or more, or was it 5,000? I mean, at some point, the numbers just get absurd about how much space these guys are taking over. And then Facebook, you know, they're going to continue with their plan to go for 700,000 square feet near Penn Station in Midtown Manhattan. So, um, you know, I'd be more worried if Facebook said that, you know, we're not going to go forward with this because we see a visual only Zoom oriented workspace, you know, starting in 2022. So I think that's a bullish sign. Um, I think the other side of the coin is you just don't know how many of these accounting firms, law firms, uh, old school economy operators will say, let's try to get by with, you know, 60% of the space that we used to have. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking that there, there are probably some office operators who are doing really well right now because like you said, Boston properties, if you collect 97% of rents, but nobody's using your building, your security maintenance kind of operational costs have to be significantly lower than usual. And you're still collecting the same amount of rent as before. So this could be uh, a little bump for some of these operators that remain doing well. I think, you know, when I hear some of the uh, folks who have been around longer than I have, and they talk about the 90s when the internet was starting. And back then there was this whole thing like nobody's going to need an office anymore. Everyone's going to work from home because of the internet. And that was when we were on the 56K dial-up modem. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, there's also the concept we've talked about, about maybe there'll be fewer people in the office, but they'll need more space per person. Maybe we'll go back to the, the old Gordon Gecko cubicles. Um, so maybe that'll offset it somewhat. I think we, we probably are overestimating the impact of this long-term and we're probably underestimating things that we haven't even thought of. Other areas that, that are gonna get affected or, or other ways that this will affect you know, office and other property types. But I would say you know, long-term, there's gonna be a shift, there's gonna be some changes, but you know, central business district office properties are probably still gonna be doing pretty well. In the long in the long run, I think there'll be a regional aspect of this, right? I think that um, New York, because it is so much the epicenter of this, and is so dependent on business travel uh, for people to maintain nice-looking offices and entertain people in New York and so forth, may have a different uh, renewal rate and um, downward trend than places like, say, Atlanta. Phoenix, Salt Lake City, other places that have had much less impact from the virus. 
and we're not that dependent on business travel, although Atlanta is um, in the first place. So I do think that um, we will see a regional impact that may make some places a little bit more uh, slow to come back than others. Yeah. Be interesting to see, like, is there a, this is just totally off the top of my head, but is there a shift to, uh, cause I don't think everyone can work from home forever. Right. I think we're all going a little cuckoo already. So if you said, all right, everyone's going to work from home forever. Maybe it's a little bit easier when the world opens up and you can leave your house and do other things. But is there a concept of instead of having one giant office in Manhattan, you have three or four, you know, Regis type offices, one in Westchester, one in Long Island, one in Jersey. Right. And you have a third, a third, a third of your company going to these smaller footprint offices and, you know, it's more flexible and it's a lot cheaper. Maybe that's something to think about. Maybe I'm just saying that as wishful thinking because I would love an office right down the road. Um, That also brings up the the lodging question of do hotels start renting out a, a third of their rooms to, you know, business people who just want to get away from their screaming kids to go get a day's work done. Wouldn't it be funny if your, you know, people's spouses started to say, instead of, you know, you're going out with your buddies again, you were out with them last Friday night. It's, you're going to the office again. Like, what about <laughs> me? What about our kids? You're going to work again. Right. Uh, we'll have to see how that, uh, that plays out. Or it could be the other way where your spouse or partner says, you have to go back to the office. Get the heck like, out of the house. This is enough. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I, I don't know which way it goes, but um, there'll probably be some of both. Well, even the shift to work from home, Zuckerberg said it would take about 10 years to shift half their employees. So it's not going to happen quickly, but it does give us an indication of what other companies might do. So it's interesting. Let's uh, talk quickly about Disney and Six Flags. They both, as you mentioned at the beginning, are announcing reopening Disney in mid-July, the first Six Flags in June but they're going to have social distancing measures. So people have to wear masks. They're going to have to go temperature screenings. There's no parades. There's no fireworks. Is this going to work? Well, here's the real question. When I'm on King Daka, the roller coaster that goes like 160 miles per hour, do they make a mask that stays on in that situation? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they do. So we may have some, we may need to have some replacement masks on the lines for those things. I mean, in, in all seriousness, we talked about this months ago. Well, maybe it wasn't months ago. It feels like months ago uh, about, you know, Disney reopening as our kind of index. That's our, our, our key to say we're getting back to normal. And honestly, I think they are going to rock because if they're, opening up at a third capacity or 40% capacity or whatever it may be, who wouldn't want to go to Disney with a third of the people there, right? That sounds like the best experience ever. You don't need a fast pass. You don't need a fast pass. Or if you do, it's five minutes instead of 40 minutes. You don't have to wait for a restaurant. You know, you're not bumping into, uh, you know, Susan from Idaho and, and Helen from, uh, you know, Kansas. You're just, you're, you're with your family and I think they're going to do really well. Um, I mean, as well as they can at 40% capacity. I didn't see anything in the articles about if they're going to change pricing, but I would pay 30% more to go to Disney 
at 30% capacity, right? I don't know about Six Flags, but um, so that's, that's just my, my two cents there. Well, Six Flags apparently crashed its website from the high demand. So maybe you're onto something, Joe. I think people are dying to get out. I think they're done with this thing. I honestly do. And, you know, wear your mask, be safe. Um, if you're, you know, if you're older or you, you're, you're somehow have some health issues, then maybe you have to wait and stay home a little bit longer. But, you know, at some point we got to get back to life here. Yeah, I think the tell will be, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think Disney will do very well. And because they're really smart guys, I think they're going to figure out a way to keep their parks open from, uh, you know, 6 a.m. until midnight so that even at 40%, they're getting 80% of the people that used to come, right? right? They have different windows of time. I, I think the interesting thing will be, you know, six months from now is how many people stayed on the property and how many people stayed at the discount hotel, you know, five miles away. Because I do think that even though people really want to get out and get back to normalcy and so forth, I do think that there is a lot of economic uncertainty. And I don't think that people are dropping necessarily five grand on their uh, Disney trip for their family, staying for a week at the uh, Contemporary. If they could spend 1500 bucks and stay at the, uh, you know, Holiday Inn five miles away. So I do think that people will be cautious with their spending uh, coming out of this. And I could be wrong, you know, I, but I do think that there's enough economic uncertainty that, um, uh, you know, people will be cautious with that dollar. Let's turn quickly to corporate CLOs. The Wall Street Journal reported this week that a Japanese bank that was one of the biggest buyers of debt suffered a big hit and said it would stop investing in that market. What does that mean for the broader leveraged loan market? Well, I think people are nervous uh, in that space. We have some research coming out next week about trends on downgrades and, and, and other things that we'll be putting out. Um, but I think that um, there's nervousness, right? So much of that market, you know, 25% or so is made up of cumulatively uh, rent-a-car guys, cruise liners, oil and gas companies, hotel operators and so forth, you know, it, it's a concentration of companies that have been really hard hit airlines. Um, and it may be more than 25%, but it's, it's meaningful. Um, a lot of these things have been downgraded, which have triggered redirection of cash flow. Um, we've seen prices on distressed assets go from, um, you know, 90 or 80 cents on the dollar down to 20%. We've seen a wave of bankruptcies. And I think that that has made uh, investors very nervous. Um, but the interesting thing about Noru, uh, which is the bank we're talking about, they own about 10% of the CLO market. They're huge. Um, they suffered a, a $3.7 billion loss um, on their book, which uh, Keegan probably already did this in his head, but that's about 400 billion yen. Um, but that loss of, of, of four, almost $4 billion was only really from AAA investments that fell in value from 97 cents on the dollar to about 95. So they're not even investing down the curve. Like they weren't hammered because they were investing in double Bs uh, or triple Bs. They were hammered um, with, with AAAs. So they make up a big part of the market. Um, Japanese investors 
generally have been very attractive to this part of the market because of negative interest rates in Japan. They like the yield, but if they all collectively tap the brakes, I think um, it will make issuing CLOs uh, a tricky thing going forward. And if you can't issue CLOs, it's going to be much harder to get leverage loan deals done, corporate buyouts, things like that. So that will raise the cost of borrowing for anybody who needs to tap that market, who needs to tap the um, double B borrowing market. So it does have ripple effects. It's going to be something that we watch um, and it could be kind of more sand in the gears for that part of the uh, uh, capital markets. Yeah. And they, you know, this is a pause, right? I mean, I think Nori Bank has done this in the past um, where they've taken a pause because of kind of market moves and they have so much money to put to work and they've really invested so much in this space that it would be surprising to me if they didn't eventually come back. And by eventually, I mean three or six months from now, not, not very long from now. Uh, if they don't, yeah, that's, a, that's a big deal. I mean, Japanese, like you said, Japanese uh, banks and investors are a huge swath of the AAA market. I mean, the irony is right now is it's probably for parts of the market, a, a buying opportunity right? This market is quite beaten down. And, um, you know, they were big buyers of this market um, when it was high flying and safe, and they're tapping the brakes now um, at a time when they could be uh, getting deals, they, they could be getting um, better returns on whatever dry powder they have. But it is an interesting thing on the dry powder, that what we saw in the great financial crisis is there was some level of serendipity um, for when the crisis happened for people and how they turned out. And this was true in the late 90s when we saw the um, long-term capital crisis too, that if you were lucky enough to have um, just done a securitization and gotten money off your balance sheet and you had dry powder, right? Or if you had issued in 2007 a, a CDO where you hadn't deployed a lot of the capital, right? You had a lot of money on the sideline you were able to pick up assets at huge discounts. And often that was the difference between a guy that had a great track record, you know, five years hence versus a guy that was uh, liquidating, right? If you were 95% invested going into uh, the second half of 2007, there was no place to run, right? You were marking down your assets day after day. If you had just issued a CDO and only 40% of the cash was accounted for, you were picking up, um, uh, you're, you know, basically vacuuming up great assets at deep discounts. And uh, over the years, you look like a genius. Um, and we could talk about that more in the future. But, um, you know, some of that is serendipity. It seems, Manis, that you're probably happy to hear that the National Hockey League is resuming going straight to the playoffs in July in two hub cities. Now, I'm not sure because they haven't announced whether or not fans will be allowed to be present, but obviously it'll be televised. So yay or nay? Oh, yay. You know, I am, uh, unlike Joe, who, who loves shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and, and The Wire, I've never been a big modern TV guy, a crime guy, a drama guy. I'm a live sports guy. And I've probably watched every legacy game that's been on for the last uh, 75 days, right? I always saw it on ESPN Classic. 
Uh, I watch old Super Bowls, old hockey games, old baseball games. Uh, just last week, I saw a game that Sandy Koufax was pitching. It was wonderful. But I'm getting to the point where uh, I'm exhausting the library. The library is getting close to being uh, exhausted. Uh, you know, I've seen Bobby Orr and, and Larry Bird countless times uh, over the last 10 weeks. And I love it, but I'm ready for the real stuff, right? You know, and you know how it ends. Cornhole and axe throwing is not getting it done anymore. Well, my favorite thing about, or the, the funniest thing about it is when you turn on these classic games, the info bar, you know, and like Optimum, when you pull up the guide, it says Rangers win in a stunning 3-2 <laughs> victory in 1994. And you're like, what the heck am I watching this for? I did see last night they were playing the Mato 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 game. Yes. Uh, which is great to watch for the last 30 seconds, but the rest of it is brutal with the Devils playing trap, hook, and hold, slow hockey. So I'm, I'll be very happy to get back to real life. The Rangers are officially kind of in the playoffs, in the fake playoffs. Chris Kreider is healthy again. Igor Shosturkin is healthy again. We got a lot of positives here as Rangers fans. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm with you. I'm ready for the real thing. My dream always had been to have a continuous spool of certain sports events so that when I walked into my home, and turned on the lights, the TV would come on and play the last 30 seconds of the Matteau game. Uh, Plaxico Burris making the catch in uh, <laughs> Super Bowl 42. Uh, you know, the ball going through Buckner's legs, you know, a couple of things like that, that, uh, you know, it just automatically came on. It would be like about an 18 minute spool. And, uh, you know, while you're making breakfast or whatever, it was just there for you. Uh, I never was technologically savvy enough to, to pull that off, but, you know, maybe someday one of my kids will be able to figure it out for me. Keegan, the Boston fan, is shaking his head behind the glass. I was but just going to say that. The thing is, that's, you know, he's got a loaf of bread under his arm. His spool would be like 50 minutes long. Ours would be like 15 minutes. That's right. <laughs> it would all be Brady. There's no uh, empathy for uh, Keegan behind the glass. Yeah. Not after these last 15 years. And, and apologies to our non-sports fan listeners that you had to endure that. But uh, with that, we'll close. Thanks to our producer, Boston fan, Keegan St. Ange Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question, drop us a line at podcast at trep.com or look for an upcoming Twitter poll for topics. Until then, visit trep.com for more info and subscribe to the Trepwire podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.